Hey everybody, Alan Arnett here on, this is Friday, August the 12th, 2022, and we're going to talk K2 today with a couple of guys who did it the way most people would love to do it. I've got Eric Gilbertson and Andreas, and Andreas has six names, Andreas Rizal Freitzberg. How close did I get, Andreas? Yeah. Not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody who listens to my podcast always makes fun of my pronunciations. One guy last week sent me a, a note and he said that I hurt his ears with my voice. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> these two gentlemen just came back from summiting not only Broad Peak, but also K2. And they did it in what a lot of people would consider to be a very rare style these days. You went um, no oxygen. Uh, not, you didn't go on a commercial team. You went just really using a Pakistani logistics operator and, uh, no Sherpas. Uh, I guess you did use some porters to haul your stuff through the, uh, Baltero glacier. But then once you got to base camp at uh, broad peak, you're, you're on your own. And, uh, oh my gosh, you summited both of them. I mean, just, uh, absolutely uh, impressive, especially this year. 2022 was a crazy year in the Karakoram. Supposedly 475 permits were issued for K2. Uh, we haven't got a final number of how many people actually summited. I'm guessing 200. And of those 200, probably 125 were Sherpas uh, supporting, uh, you know, the clients. Uh, so, uh, in many ways, K2 became Everest this year. We, and, you know, a lot of people thought that would never happen. Uh, but, uh, you guys, you know, you went against the grain and you and a, and a couple of other people, uh, did it. So congratulations. How do you feel, Eric? Uh, I'm still recovering a little bit, a little bit tired. I think I lost a lot of weight, so I'm trying to eat a lot of ice cream now. <laughs> yeah. It's the best thing about mountain climbing. You get to eat a lot before you go. And when you come home. <laughs> Andreas, you got home a couple of days ago. You're in Denmark, right? Yes. Yeah. Also, still, still recovering. Like afterwards, we, like, I was a very strong French guy. After we had climbed and got back to Skado, we tried go, going mountain running with him, and I quickly realized that I had not recovered enough for, for that. You know, a lot of times you come back from these big expeditions and you're like Superman because you've got all those red blood cells and you come back down to sea level and you can just do superhuman things for, you know, a couple of weeks and then all of a sudden you you become normal again. So you should get out there and you should go do laps on Mount Rainier up in Seattle, Eric. <laughs> yeah, I might still have a little bit of acclimation left. It's been like <laughs> two weeks now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll 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 have it for a while. Um, so a couple of things to get this going. I want to talk, I want to talk a lot about K2, about climbing K2 and your experiences and also on Broad Peak. Um, and, you know, and then we'll get into some of the other stuff that's, you know, a little bit controversial about the crowds and the trash and some of those things, but, uh, you know, I, sadly, that is part of the, uh, part of the remit these days, uh, totally unacceptable. Uh, you know, I don't know what happened to leave no trace, but, uh, we'll get into that, but I really want to stay on the positive and talk about your climbing experience and what you, you know, kind of what you felt and how you went about approaching these two climbs, because you did do it pretty much independently, but, um, to start off with, uh, when Andreas, he sent me an email and he, and he basically did it uh, being a very good friend to you, Eric, and, and he talked all about how, you know, you're, you're doing all of these, these high points. And when I first saw this, I thought it said county high points. And I thought, oh, okay. So he's doing all the high points in the U.S. counties. And I went, no, 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 wait, this is countries. 
not counties. So I went to your wonderful website where you had this fantastic um, uh, um, description of your K2 climb. And the website is Country High Point. So I'll put that on the screen. And uh, it ends up that you and your brother, Matthew, um, what are you guys up to? You're trying to climb the highest peak in every country on earth. Yeah, we started out with the U.S. state high points, and we finished that in like 2000, uh, like 10 years ago, and then we wanted to move on from there. So <clears throat> from the U.S. state high points, we get one country high point, Denali. So we kind of are already starting on the country high points list. So then <laughs> we decided to start doing country high points. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was a hard, I mean, it was a, not, not the easiest one to start with. Yeah. And then Matthew happened to have a, he had some conference and he had a layover in Bahrain for like five hours at night. And so he went out and got the Bahrain high point. And so we had two. And then we kind of, we started working on all the countries after that. And you're up to how many now? 123? Uh, together, we've done 135 out of about 196. He's done yeah. a couple of different ones than I have. So I've done 131 and he's done 97 or so. And I love it in your on your site. And again, the site's called Country High Points. You say that you don't count a termite hill as being the high point. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is one interesting uh, caveat. Different countries, we have to have some, some caveats. So Gambia is a very flat country. And so I went there in December. I brought it, uh, before I went, it was unknown where the highest point in the country was. And so I did a lot of research and I brought this survey grade GPS equipment that I, that compass data uh, lent me for free. And so I surveyed the four highest candidates. And so I figured out the highest point. However, if you count termite mounds, it'd be a different point because these termite mounds can be two meters tall. And the <laughs> difference between the candidates is only like one or two meters. But I decided there's no committee about this, but my brother and I decided we're not going to count termite mounts because <laughs> they can get higher or lower different years. So it, the high point would change every year if you did. So that's where that rule came from. So I, this is this is a uh, this is a a layup question. What was the most? What's been the most interesting of the hundred and thirty-one thus far for you? I would say the Afghanistan high point was the most interesting. Andreas and I—that was our first trip. Andreas, he he joins for the hard ones. Like, ah. uh, K2. And... <laughs> so the Afghanistan high point, we did this in 2019. There's all kinds of different, there's like a dozen different levels of different, like areas of difficulty here. The first is getting yourself to Afghanistan. Because when we went, the Taliban was controlling everything. And there was supposedly like a $7 million ransom for like, they would kidnap Americans. So just getting in there was dangerous. But luckily, this region we went to where the high point is, is a little bit safer. So when you get into, so you get into the country, and then you got to get to the base camp, and the approach is landmined. So you got to be really careful. So we hired porters to go with, but still it's not super safe. So there was one place where the trail goes through this meadow, and there's like little rocks on the side, and I put my tent like two inches to the side of the trail on the left. And the porter came up, and he said, no, boom. No, boom. And then I got really scared. So I took my tent away and he said, okay, on the other side. So you have to be really careful. And then the mountain itself is 
it's around 24,000, 24 and a half thousand feet. So it's pretty tall. And it's, there's a technical section up at 20,000 feet. So this mountain has everything. That was definitely the most interesting. And Andreas and I were both on that trip. Hey, Andreas, how did you guys meet? Because you're in Denmark and uh, Eric was uh, MIT with your, with your brother, Matthew. And you've got a mechanical engineering degree. Did Matthew also get mechanical? Yeah, we're both. Okay. Both and then, so how did you guys, how did you guys meet one in the U.S. and one in Denmark? Yeah, it, it's a, as Eric says, it, it was a Nosjak, and it's actually through Tim Bogdanov that I got invited to, he was originally invited to the Nosjak expedition too, but he ended up not going, he wanted, I think, wanted to save up for, for doing Everest at some point instead, but he got me in contact with the guy who was arranging it, and like, it, it sounded like such an interesting expedition that there, there was no way I could, I could say no to that, and yeah, then I just I didn't even know that Eric was on the on the expedition, but yeah, we met up, met there, and then we we were doing probably most of the work and trail breaking and rope fixing uh, the, the route, and ended and so ended up summiting together. It worked out pretty well. <laughs> and you did, and you didn't go boom. No, we <laughs> we did. We even we saw a cow that had hit a on the way that had hit a landmine. So yeah. To, quite scary that's a little sobering yeah well at least you had fresh meat so you know. yeah it was it, it, Pro probably not bad joke right yeah. <laughs> so uh when did you guys uh so the high points uh, in each country high point obviously k2 is the highest in pakistan um and so as you yeah that means that everest is on your list and is it on eric is it on your list too andreas it would be interesting but for me it, it, the main thing is financing it it yeah would be difficult everest isn't quite quite a bit more expensive than than k2 like i think eric's plan is to do it next spring i could probably join in for kanton Junger, which i'm quite interested in and i may do that but everest is probably a bit hard yeah too. yeah well i don't know though i uh, i was reading again in this outstanding trip report that you wrote let me get the number here that um that you guys paid um four thousand eight hundred dollars for the permit and um and then for broad peak that was base camp services at broad peak and then another two thousand and you know as we all know that with all the commercialization now the price is going anywhere from you know 40 to one hundred and forty thousand. So uh, you have obviously mastered uh, climbing on the cheap. And I was reading a little bit again, Eric. And so you have some best practices like, uh, um, you know, not eating out, riding your bike to work, uh, you know, <laughs> getting by on ramen noodles for, you know, two months when you're on an expedition. What's some other secrets that you have to save money? One thing my brother and I have done is get a lot of high points by bike touring. So we got most of the country high points in Europe by bike touring. So what we do is to get the flight to Europe, we sign up for an airline credit card and you get like bonus for signing up and you get a free flight. And then once you, we're, we're in Europe, we have our own transportation. We don't have to pay for that. And then for sleeping, we stealth, we call it stealth camping. You just kind of yeah. hide, hide in the woods. <laughs> don't pay for that. And then food, like in Eastern Europe, it's cheaper than the U.S., so I figure we actually save money by climbing high points in Europe. <laughs> you can't do that in every country, but 
<laughs> the some of them you can save a lot of money. You make the Yellowstone dirt baggers look like they're at the Ritz Carlton. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit rough sometimes. Uh, you're not guaranteed a good stealth site, but you can. I can usually find something. Well, I did see though you had you had some uh, some cakes that were celebrating the summit, so that must have been from the from your uh, Pakistani cook there at uh, Broad Peak Base Camp. Yeah, they were they were great. We had all kinds of cakes. That I had my birthday on the trip, so they made me a birthday cake. And then after Broad and K two, we each got a cake. And then <laughs> coming back from K two, we we met up with Dennis Arupko, and it was his birthday, and so we ate birthday cake with him. <laughs> and then back in Scarlet, we had another cake for the whole thing. <laughs> Andreas, did you gain weight on this trip? I probably also lost. Yeah. Usually, I've actually on our previous trips, I've been quite I've managed to keep my weight, but I think here I lost quite a bit of weight because of K K two, like also because of this mistake we we we, uh, we made with not bringing like all our stuff up and expecting the weather to be worse than it. Like just relying on the weather being good. Yeah, we did not bring enough food, so we had. Maybe I think probably only about a thousand calories a day on, on K2. Yeah, I want to get to that in a little while about uh, your your uh, your diet of primarily of Gatorade, um, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, in terms of experience that prepared you, because this was your first 8,000 meter mountain for either one of you, correct? Broad yeah. was our first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Broad was the first and then K2 second. Um, and um, Andreas, you were saying that originally, that K2 was not even really in your planning. You were going to go climb Broad Peak. Yeah, we had, we had actually discussed the, the option of K2 and then decided that it'd probably be best that we did do some more 8,000s first before trying on K2. So it was not at all in the plan. It wasn't really decided before Skatu that we would just pay a because we, we were able to pay the just a deposit, not actually act. And then we could later, if we wanted, activate the the permit so we, we, we would still be able to get if we decided not to go we would still be able to get our, our money back so and then the decision was finally made the, the, the day before we went up for, for Broad Peak because we had already tried Broad Peak once and made it to the call and there we felt good so at that point we, did, we thought that we would make Broad Peak and, and we were feeling good enough that we could go for an attempt on K2. So, I mean, this makes the story even more amazing that, you know, you go over to Pakistan to go climb Broad Peak and you're like, well, hey, you know, what time is it? Well, we got time for K2. Let's go do that. Okay, let's go. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, I would say it was kind of in my mind as a very low probability, but maybe if everything worked out. But since we never climbed an 8,000er, it seemed uh, pretty risky to plan on K2. Right. So the plan was that we thought of was okay we'll see how broad goes like if we're doing really do really well on broad we're okay with acclimation we take our time we're breathing okay and then the weather's okay afterwards then we can give k2 a try and it, it ended up working out really well so you kind of had these little milestones that if you if every you can check all the boxes then this would go i like it yeah if broad went poorly then maybe we would yeah save k2 for another year yeah yeah so we, you were uh, one thing we actually we had discussed uh, beforehand though that a way to do k2 would be to acclimate on broad peak first 
we actually thought that was a better strategy than just going on K2. And we had some friends, like the Germans, Maurits, Corinne, and a French guy, Serge, that were only going for K2. And I think like one of the reasons why they did not make it was maybe because they were trying to acclimate on K2. And maybe it also with this many people, it was really hard to find space, tent spaces and so on. So I think, so we had decided that if we wanted to go for K2, then Broadly probably was a good way to, to do it. And a lot of people try that and very few actually pull it off. Uh, as I've watched this over the years, because uh, what happens, I think a lot of people underestimate Broad Peak, um, you know, because that is not a walk up. I mean, it's got the reputation as one of the probably the four attainable 8000 meter mountains, along with Choyoyu, uh, G2, Manislu and Broad Peak. I think that's kind of on the bubble. But um, a lot of people try it. And they don't make it. So you guys uh, did well there. Hey, Eric, talk a little bit about uh, Alpine Adventure Guides. Uh, they're a Pakistani company um, outfitter. Um, are they out of Skardu or Skoli or Islamabad? Uh, Ali Sotoro is in charge, and he kind of goes back and forth between Islamabad and Skardu. How'd you so find them? Uh, Marie, our other partner, Marie, went with them last year for Gashabram too. And so she recommended them. It seems like word of mouth is a big yeah. part of how they get recommended. Yeah, but he's great. He provides uh, transportation from airport to base camp and porters and then meals in base camp. But then we're on our own above base camp. Right, right. So he's one of the, at least as far as I research, he's one of the cheapest ones. Yeah. That's yeah. One, another reason why we went with him. <laughs> but he has so many connections. He like, sounds like he can get any, pull any strings that are needed. And he knows all the history, whatever peak is, if you want to know like the highest unclimbed peak in Pakistan, he knows that and he'll show a picture on his phone and he knows everything. <laughs> well, that's super. You were in, you're in good hands, obviously then. Um, so, you know, we could spend an hour talking about just the trek up the Baltero or talking about climbing Broad Peak or just K2 or, you know, the next, uh, you know, country high point. So let's just try to, I would love just to kind of stay focused if we can on climbing K2, because I think that's what a lot of people are interested in. However, we cannot let Broad Peak go without some love. Um, so can you summarize your experience on Broad Peak, um, either one of you? I would say we went in trying to intentionally climb it slowly with a lot of rotations with the goal that we would be very well acclimated for K2. So we ended up doing three rotations then up to 7,000 meters, camp three, and then one failed summit attempt up to the call at like 7,900. And then one time we reached the summit. And I would say broad, some parts of broad were harder than K2 because on our first summit attempt, we were, it was just us two going for it above camp three. And so we had to break trail from camp three at 7,000 to the call at seven, nine. And that took like 11 or 12 hours is extremely tiring. And so we got to the call and then unexpectedly it was bad weather. We had to turn around, unfortunately. So then. And the, the ironic, <laughs> there was like quite ironic that we ended up breaking trail because we had actually brought ascent plates with like it's like type of snowshoe that you can fit with your crampon specifically to avoid having to break trail in deep snow but because the first few hundred meters were they were quite easy there was no snow then we decided there was that weight and left them and then the rest ended up being really tough trail breaking yeah so it was a bad decision 
But one other difficulty on broad was on the summit push. So it was great. There was a team, a guided team from seven summit treks that the Sherpas, they broke trail ahead of us to the call. But we, we met them at the call and then the fixed lines ended. And so they were kind of hesitating. And so I just went up ahead. And so we ended up fixing a line with the help of one of our friends, Pika from Bolivia on the crux rock step on broad. And we left that so they could climb up and then we broke trail yesterday the summit. So that was kind of difficult breaking trail above 8,000 meters. And there How were no you... fixed lines. So it was, so they, they ended up turning around, but so it was kind of just us and our friends. You know, there was a Pakistani high altitude climber that um, fell through that cornice right in that area. Uh, did, you, did you have any moments that you were a little uneasy on that ridge? It was well, a little definitely. It, yeah, it okay. was it was quite exposed. But I think the, the you had to stay very like generally on the right on the Pakistani side, close to the rocks. Yeah, like, it was like like fairly like mixed climbing or scrambling all the way, but on the rocks, and you really couldn't go go on the easier side or like, on the there on the Chinese side, on the, the left on the corners. And we actually had it turned out like this happened after we were descending. Back, but Marie, also, she fell through a cornice and landed on a ledge, luckily, like one and a half meters below. On, and then she managed to climb back up. But it, it just shows the, like, the danger on Broad Peak. This section on Broad Peak was clearly more dangerous than anything on K2 because it had, K2 had fixed lines all, all the way. And it, I think a British, British guy tragically also fell on. From right. like on the way, to, or maybe on the way back from the summit, on this section. What what gave you the confidence to do that summit ridge without fixed ropes? Were the, was the weather conditions decent? Well, the weather was great, but we've also done stuff that's a little harder than that. Last summer, we climbed Peak Pobeda. It's the Kyrgyzstan high point via the Abalakov route, and there. Are, enormous cornices on there i mean it must have been like decades for these things to form and you really have to tread the line if you go too far to the right it's like a abbey slope but too far to the left you're on the cornice and you kind of have to go in the middle and so i think that experience kind of prepared us for broad was a little bit tamer than that but that was also six thousand feet you know a few thousand meters lower so you're at pretty significant altitude on broad. Yeah, that's true. The trail breaking was really tough in uh, on that summit ridge above 8,000 because maybe because it was our first time up at above 8,000. Luckily, there were three of us, me, Andreas, another uh, climber, Bartek from Poland. So we would just take turns. We would each break trail for like 10 minutes and rotate. And that, but it was really tough. Oh, my gosh. It's quite funny how big of a difference it is being three. Because basically, it's basically like you're basically fifty percent faster because you have doubled the break break time, and like it's so much easier, of course, going behind the person breaking trail. So yeah, it's much much more efficient being three people than two people. You know, and and that just makes what uh, people like Dennis does just so much more impressive. That you know he's out there, it's just him, him in the mountain, nobody else, no oxygen, just he and his ice axe and just plodding along and knocking these things off but he has like 27 now uh 8,000 meter summits yeah. it's just and you guys yeah, had he goes yeah. and he goes well at least one of his broad attempts and his k2 climb he goes when there's no one else there so he's yeah. definitely 
breaking all on his own. Yeah, yeah. He's a beast. Absolute beast. Okay, so you get Broad Peak, um, and you're feeling good, and you're he still healthy. So, um, you know, you uh, call up with your visa card and get a, a permit to uh, <laughs> to K2, and you ask somebody, where's K2? And they say, it's over there. It's the really pointy one just around the corner. And you go, oh, yeah, we, we think we've seen that one. So you, <laughs> you go over to base camp, um, and all of a sudden, there is, you're like in, you know, downtown London or Seattle. I mean, it's just like, you know tent city over there uh, i know broad peak had uh it, it supposedly had a fair number of permits but it looked like it wasn't nearly as crowded as k2 was uh and you basically um climbed it in alpine style did you do any rotations at all no we had we'd basically been up and down broad five times so yep. we were pretty much ready for k2 and that was part of our strategy yep because we wanted to minimize time on k2 we were, I was a little, I was pretty nervous about all the crowds, like sending rockfall down and the tents being, camps being too crowded. And if we could just get up and down as fast as made sense, then it'd be, probably be the safest. Yeah. So you get there and you go to advanced base camp. You got to do a little uh, dodging of the water on that little, you know, little baby ice fall. But, you know, it may be small, but it's also deadly, you know, to get to advanced base camp. And then you look up and you see that slope heading up to camp one. Um, and you see people coming down and, and as you're going up, I guess that you had to dodge rocks and Eric, you described it sounding like helicopters flying over your head with the rocks whizzing by your head. And I guess yeah, an oxygen was, bottle as well. Yeah, it was really, that's probably the scariest part of K2 for me coming, going up to camp one. Cause within like 30 minutes of going up, we see this green missile coming down as an oxygen canister and that would probably killed us if it hit us. And then another one came down right behind it. And then higher up the rock fall, one hit me in the leg. And I think it would have broke my leg if it hit the bone. Luckily, it just hit the muscle on my calf. So I was limping for the next day or two, but we made it up. That was pretty scary. <laughs> you have a pretty good hematoma, pretty good bruise. Yeah, it's still a little discolored and still a little sore like two or three weeks later. <laughs> so, Andres, you, did you carry Eric's pack then for a little while? No, nah, he was, it seemed like he was going still fairly strong. So, but, but yeah, on that, that section, I think we got up so high that it, at that point, but yeah, I was actually seriously, seriously considering just giving up it because it was like so crazy. These huge rocks just came, came falling, falling down. And it seemed like the people descending did not care at all. They were even saying, why are you going up now? It's a bad day to go up. And we, we, we actually thought that most people had already made it down, but but yeah, yeah. Just, we were so when the rock fall really seriously started, it, it would probably take about the same time going down as keep going up to camp one. So whether like it wouldn't really be any safer to go go down, and especially with so many people going down, it would take ages. So yeah, at that point we may as well fall, uh, may as well continue, despite yeah. the it was really crazy. Probably I would say that's the, the most dangerous I've ever done in the mountains like it, you just feel like you can't do anything you just like have to like take cover behind like the the, the, the cliffs or the big rocks in order to avoid it being hit yeah we thought we were planning it out well because we knew the big wave was going up on the 22nd and we thought everyone would be come down on the 23rd then and so the 24th would clear out 
and and it did for the most part there were maybe only 20 climbers coming down or so but i guess it only takes one or two that kick some rocks to, to be dangerous yeah so describe the size of the rocks i know when i was there in 14 i mean we had some little pebbles that even if that little bitty you know uh, tennis or golf ball size rock hits you in the wrong place you're done how big were the rocks that you guys were experiencing i mean the one that hit me was maybe like this but they were they were huge there was the full range yeah, i think probably 25 to 30 kilograms like they were that's really like the helicopters when they are rotating in, in the air and then at this point most of the snow had melted so it was really icy so they did not slow down and they and even worse they would change direction often when they hit the ice <laughs> so there was even if you thought you could dodge it if they hit the ice it may just change direction and hit it yeah so i would say we were very lucky that that nothing serious happened there so what this is 2014 so uh chris our meteorologist was saying it was kind of unusual weather there was like a two-week dry period late june early july I was kind of thinking that might have contributed to our rock fall. I mean, what was yeah. it like when you went down? Yeah, well, I mean, we definitely had rock fall as well, not nearly as bad, um, you know. Uh, and what my my experience was that when the rock came down, it was somebody that by accident, and I, I'm going to assume good intentions, that they just inadvertently kicked a rock and it just went flying. And, you know, but they also didn't follow some of the standard protocol, like, you know, yelling rock. You know, so at least you could, um, you know, try to avoid it. But like you say, it's just a, you know, it's just a ping pong ball just flopping all around the place. So, yeah. So you get up to camp one and um, that was a little eye opening, I guess. Yeah, it was completely deserted, which was what we were hoping for. But there was so much trash and it smelled like people went to the bathroom all over the place. It was surprising to me because it was so much different than Broad Peak. Broad, the camps were generally not too bad. Camp 1 and 2, they were small. But then K2, they were people just, le so many people just left tents. There's so many just like flattened tents that are just everywhere. It's actually kind of hazardous to walk in crampons because mm -hmm. you trip over all that. And yeah, you said that there were also trash all over the place. <laughs> So a bunch of empty sardine cans and all and like coke bottles all over the place like, like these things that are not even very heavy to carry down yeah, i don't quite understand why people would not take it take it back but it seems like people it seems like when somebody starts doing it then everybody else just like it's already disgusting and it's like then people just add on to it and it seemed like that uh, there wasn't one toilet era area that people just kind of went wherever they wanted to uh, I guess from the smell, it seemed that way. I didn't really inspect too thoroughly. But... <laughs> you didn't look too closely. I can understand that. Um, yeah, you know, when I was there again at 14, there was probably 10 tents there. And I think, Eric, you wrote there was 20 uh, platforms, which makes perfect sense. And I believe there was also a, a lower camp one they called the Chinese camp that was somewhat, um, you know, right below, maybe a couple hundred feet below or maybe five or six hundred feet below. I don't know if it's you saw like that maybe halfway up or a third yeah. of the way up i saw a little platform you could put maybe three tenths yeah. there's one pitched i don't know if that's the one 
So you start you start climbing up K two. What's the um, what's the initial um, feeling? I mean, you're you're obviously feeling really good because you're acclimatized. But now you're I mean, come on, you're climbing K two, and you're you know it's just the two of you, I guess. At that point, you you team up with some more people later on. We'll talk about. But you know what what's the what's the emotion in your mind? What's going through your head as you're going up that uh, you know that thirty degree forty degree slope? I've been reading about K two for many years, so it was kind of amazing to actually see the mountain especially because we hadn't really made concrete plans in advance just kind of felt good and went for it yeah it was pretty yeah pretty amazing to actually see the things i read about so much what was your thought when you saw it the first time from concordia you know when you kind of came up and turned left and i don't know if you got there when it was uh, cloudy or sunny but what was that that first time you saw it for in real life what is this what did kind of feelings came out it's quite awe-inspiring when you see like the pyramid, this massive pyramid shape, and especially I would say it's even more when you get to base camp because then you're just looking straight up. It, it seems like it really seems almost insurmountable from from down below. Yeah, it always seems much steeper from a distance, like impossible to get up. I mean, of course, when you get close, it gets a little bit, a little seems a little less steep, but. Yeah, from Concordia, unfortunately, we were in a snowstorm. But once we got to Broad Base Camp, then we could we could yeah. see it kind of sticking out of the clouds a little bit. Pretty awe-inspiring. Yeah. Did you ever think about doing the magic line instead of the Abruzzi? <laughs> that looked pretty difficult. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. You could do it. <laughs> Okay, so you go up and you um and you you know you go from camp one. Uh, you did house of chimney, which uh, probably wasn't a big um, obstacle for you. But then you pull into camp two, and it's the tent graveyard. Yeah, the platforms. I was I didn't expect this. This just like ten tents stack, ten abandoned tents flattened, and then you put your tent on top of that. I mean, I guess it's sturdier than a pile of snow, but I don't know. It's a lot of trash. Definitely all kinds of trash camp too. So it was the same yeah. amount of like the tin cans you saw and the Coke bottles and stuff? Same thing? It's, yeah, but yeah. just, just much worse than camp one. Yeah, this was like camp two was often like, I mean, this still, they thought was also the, where we were going to be getting snow to melt. Like we get clean snow, but because it was, like, first of all, most of that, most snow had melted, but yeah, it was just so disgusting that you thought, like, you have to go pretty far away to to get drinking or yeah to get snow for drinking water yeah luckily we found some uh, yeah camp two there was also deserted which was great that's what we wanted there some people had just abandoned their tents and left them up so there were like four or five just abandoned tents which i mean i guess for emergency it's good to crawl in but you also should take that off the mountain i would think if, if you're done using it absolutely absolutely i mean full stop there's not there's not a lot of excuses that uh that i can give unless you you know you're, you're in an emergency situation you need to get somebody down you know immediately or, or they'll die you know you might justify leaving a tent behind then but otherwise you know you hauled it up you ought to haul it back down yeah agreed <laughs> and i think the other problem with camp two is that because of where it's situated the winds are constantly blowing and um you know if you know, if somebody leaves a you know a, a flap undone or a, a zipper open then it's so easy for that tent to get shredded and then it either 
well, it does both. It blows away and it also gets frozen into the ground. And I don't know if you saw this or not, but you could see like little flaps coming up of fabric frozen into the ice. And, you know, that's virtually impossible to get out. I mean, the manpower it would take to get a, an ice axe and pick that out would just be, um, you know, superhuman. Yeah, once we got down, we talked to one Pakistani that he said he was part of a cleaning team that they're waiting for a window to go up. I don't know if they ever did. They were going to plan to clean up the Camp 1 and 2. I hope they did. I never saw anything about that. Um, I know you paid a little extra money, a couple hundred bucks to, you know, for your share of that. But uh hope they didn't pocket the money and they go back up. I, in 2014, there was a joint Italian and Pakistani 50th anniversary team, and they cleared a lot of the old ropes. Uh, did you see a lot of the spider webs uh, going up? Yeah, one anchor. Oh, I took yeah. a picture. I later counted. It was like 15 or 20 different ropes. It's amazing. <laughs> so you, you just got to a... go and pick the, the best looking one. Yeah, it's hard to tell. What's your because... technique for finding the good rope? It's tough because yeah, especially on the way up, on the way down, of course, you know. But on the way up, yeah, you may you may have a good, it may look good. And then you get high up and, it, and it's caused your yeah and it's, it's really difficult to, to figure out which one were the best at some places and it's hard to predict because there'll be this white korean rope you're probably familiar with they sell in skardu yeah, the static rope. line and it looks very it doesn't inspire much confidence but then sometimes you will we'll see this fresh looking orange dynamic rope and then higher up it's the sheath is gone and it's just like cut to the core but the korean rope is fine so you really, it's really hard to tell which rope's going to last. Um, so I usually try to clip a bunch of them. Yeah, I can. <laughs> that was always my my, my uh, technique was that when in doubt, clip into as many as it'll fit in the beaner. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> Quantity over quality. So tell me about climbing the Black Pyramid. How did, uh, what was your impression of, of that climbing? For me, that was one of the most fun times I've ever had in my life was climbing between 22 and 24,000 and, you know, low fifth class rock climbing. It was just fantastic. Yeah, I thought that was really fun. Starting from camp two, there was a bunch of scrambling and there was the one section that was kind of vertical with the two ladders. Yeah. Yeah, the two like cable ladders. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty fun. Yeah, I like the Black Pyramid. <laughs> it was a little longer than I thought it would be. Just, I don't know, based on reading reports. I thought, oh, it's just one little feature. No, it's like it's no. hours of climbing. Yeah, it's like a mountainside. <laughs> yeah. Andreas, what was your impression of the Black Pyramid? Yeah, I also found it a bit more enjoyable because between Camp 1 and Camp 2, it's like it was a big rock wall. It was really terrible. So It was a lot of scrambling too, but not very enjoyable. It got, got quite a bit better above, uh, above Camp 2. Did you have so, yeah, rock definitely fall? more enjoyable despite having most it was snowing almost all the entire way up yeah. there. So bad visibility. Did you have much rock fall on the Black Pyramid? We didn't have any. Okay, uh, good. Not for me at least. So nothing yeah, that made it a lot funner. Yeah. <laughs> Above yeah. camp two, we finally didn't have to worry. Yeah. Yeah. It was like no avalanche risk, no rock fall, just scramble up. Yeah, now now all you got to deal with is breathing <laughs> with the altitude. Okay, so you get to camp three and um, and then camp four, and just kind of talk me through what, uh, I mean, you had a, 
some false starts. You, you know, ended up uh, going with the Italians and kind of got a little sideways with them around tents and you didn't bring your sleeping bags, you know, you know, to keep the weight down, but you got up and you already had permission. I found this actually pretty impressive. You had permission from uh, like Dawa with seven summits treks to uh, use their tent uh, or maybe it was um, uh, 8k expeditions, but nonetheless, you interacted with the other major operators and um, obviously formed some pretty good relationships with them, which was impressive. Um, so you get to camp four and, and it'll talk, talk us through from arriving at camp four and then getting up in the middle of the night and going to the top of K2. Maybe you should focus a little on, on camp three because they did the way the, like it didn't quite go as planned in camp three as, as because they, the whole point of not bringing the, the sleeping bag was basically that we, we had some, fr like a, a, some friends had a tent in camp three. But we didn't plan to sleep there. We just wanted to go from camp two to camp three, then rest a bit there and melt snow, and then actually start the summit push from camp three. Okay. The same day as we went up to camp three. But that that, that just did not like there was no option for that because it was snowing so so badly. Like we expected no that it would be clear skies and but it was snowing maybe 10, 20 centimeters, maybe even more. They, they, that day and and kept going all night so that's why we ended up staying sleeping in the tent and then there we had one sleeping bag that we could share and then the, but then and the following day the guys who had the like who owned the tent they came up so we had to leave the tent and then like the, the either we had to go pick up our own tent and bring it up but then instead we the camp too and then bring yeah, it we, that was an, like there were, but there was a, a tent that was left like in which like half the yeah the, inside the tent there was quite a steep slope <laughs> like it, like I think the snow underneath it had melted away so we could only use half of the tent oh. and we were lucky to find some mats in the snow outside that all, like people also had just left yeah this tent <laughs> we got permission out. from one of the seven summit Sherpas he told oh, us like he knew this he knew this tent was abandoned no one's using it and he saw us outside he said you guys can use that one that's fine we didn't have any sleeping bags though at that point <laughs> so, so we had this we found we found a pair of uh, women's uh, down pants <laughs> size small and for the night we each <laughs> had put a leg in the <laughs> and uh, like a reach maybe in the middle of the thigh but yeah it helped a bit with the warmth but in general that night was like really awful yeah, we did. We made and the decision all, not to go down to camp two to get our stuff. Yeah, because then we probably wouldn't have enough energy to summit, and the weather had been too bad to push up that evening, which was our original plan. And so we just decided we'll uh, tough it out that night, and so stay without sleeping bags in that tent, and then try to summit the next day. And so it worked. It worked out. We just got really close and stuck our stuck our legs in our packs and in this little pair down pants and i did a lot of force shivering that night and we got a couple out a couple hours of sleep we had down jackets and down pants and so that helped and it was it wasn't super cold like the summit temperature was supposed to be minus 10 that night fahrenheit and so down at camp three it was probably above zero so we made it through that night hey sharing then, is caring <laughs> luckily the weather cleared the next a little bit cleared a little more the next day and so we were able to convince uh some other climbers 
Well, I went over to try to rally some help to go up because we were like, we have to go up this day or we're going down. We can't. We were out of food at that point, too. I had like a couple bars and some Gatorade. And so we had to do a summit push or go down. And so we, I talked to some other independent climbers. Our two friends, Serge and Maritz, they said, okay, they'll join us going up breaking trail because there was like eight inches of fresh snow or a foot by then. And then two other independent climbers, like they were like, okay, we'll join you. And then I went to the seven summits team. They're like, we're going up. And they said, okay, we'll go up too. Maybe they'd already planned it. But so then we all end up maybe like 15 of us going up that, that morning. And so the seven summits Sherpas, they were breaking trail the whole way. I mean, they were, I felt a little bit bad, but they were breathing oxygen and they're super strong and there's five of them. So it seemed unlikely we could help a whole lot. So <laughs> they, they did all I, the work I breaking felt- trail. I felt like we were actually going at that point. We all went really slow, and I was actually talking to the Italians and suggesting that we, because we knew they were very, exper- very experienced, and suggesting that we do go help. But, but they compared it to like a cycling where you're drafting and cycling that they would rather stay behind and preserve energy, and maybe it was a good strategy. But yeah, it felt a bit bad just leaving it up for the Sherpas to do all the the hard work. But I guess it helped us. So. So you guys just hung back in the peloton and, you know, <laughs> yeah, and let the sprinters go ahead. It, it yeah, is they a, did all the work. It is amazing though how strong the Sherpas are at altitude. It's just so impressive and breaking the trail. Um, yeah, I mean, I, my suspicion is if you would have gone up and and tried to help, they would t- kind of would have you know said, "Okay, kids, you're cute. Get back in line." <laughs> Thanks, but no thanks, because they are just so strong. And, you know, typically, you know, we get in the way. We really don't help. Okay, so you're following now. You're kind of part of the, you know, a little a little baby conga line, but still 15 of y'all. had. I didn't realize it was that many. So you know, Floor and um, um, Iman from Iran. And so you guys, you two, and then the Italians and the Seven Summits guys. I guess the seven summits, the Italians were with the seven summits team, right? Yeah, they were kind of supported, not supported. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. I think exactly. they were they might have... what we were doing, but yeah, I don't know how much they seemed. I thought they carried their, Yeah, I don't know if they actually, they probably had tents for them. Yeah, tents were installed for them. So yeah, there's like some support, it seems. Yeah. So talk about the bottleneck. So, uh, Eric, I think you wrote something that you didn't think it was nearly as bad as the reputation had. Yeah, maybe I I hyped it up in my mind a lot, but it was just kind of a gradual snow slope with some rocks, uh, some rock outcrops in between. It seemed like it was maybe like less than 50 degrees. I, I, I've seen pictures other years where it's just all melted out in rock, and I'm sure it'd be more difficult than, or maybe some years I saw ice. No I ice. mean, this year was, it, it didn't seem that bad, just a, like a, a snow slope. The traverse, that that was a little bit sketchy. I'm sure it's sketchy every year. So let's stay on the bottleneck for a second, because some people have asked questions about going to the climber's left, because there's a rock band that goes up. We actually went to the climber's right and went over the rock uh, on the right-hand side and not into gully itself. I think you're right that the issue is that if there is a release uh, of the Serac or rocks, then it's just going to funnel it right through that bottleneck, hence the name. Uh, But if it doesn't happen, then it's not a big deal. Uh, so it's kind of one of those, you know, if nothing happens, you're, you're safe. If something happens, you're dead. 
But uh, did you see anybody even considering that to the climbers left on that rock band next to the bottleneck or hear anybody talk about that as an option? No, I thought it was like Weisner in the 30s was the only one who attempted that. Yeah. I mean, to the right, actually, there are enough like steeper rock outcrops that they seem like they would actually provide shelter if there were ice fall from above. There was maybe like three or four places where I was felt okay resting that nothing would fall. And so maybe maybe that's the safer option just because yeah. there are a couple semi-protected areas. But I was kind of surprised. I didn't see any debris down at the base. Right. I would expect a lot of debris under a hang glacier. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought I haven't heard of maybe there have been have there been any inc- I haven't heard of any incidents of injuries from ice fall since the 2008 incident neither have i i mean there might have been you know a sliver here and there um but i haven't heard of anybody you know certainly no injuries or deaths related to that but um you know with climate change uh, it's just uh, all, all bets are off so you get up above the bottleneck you got it now you look to the left and, and you you're here's the rack wall above you you know it's it it it's not 100 percent vertical it's not 90 90 degrees but it's you know it, it feels vertical when you look at it uh, did you, you kind of go oh wow <laughs> well for better or worse it was still in the dark it was like <laughs> 2 or 3 a.m then so we couldn't see how how scary it was maybe but it was definitely very narrow there was only like i don't know this much little section that had been stomped out in the snow then a steep drop on the left and then an ice cliff on the right so the sherpas they had fixed two good high quality ropes along that oh good inspired confidence and yeah. they put they put screws in pretty frequently so it what i it didn't seem too unsafe to me yeah when i saw some pictures of it, it looked like there was a little bit of a boot path that had been kicked into that wall you know not very wide you know like the, the width of a boot i mean literally maybe you know half a meter or something but yeah and there was maybe one spot where it was actually just rock slab with dust on top and that was a little bit a little bit sketchy to get up these kind of front point in and move across yeah something like that it, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't too long though yeah yeah so you get past the traverse and now you start breathing again that must have been you, yeah you must have had a little bit of the heart going and you know breathing a little bit heavier andreas oh yeah definitely you, at that point i had caught the italians and they like below they were going pretty slow but uh, like here they really moved really moved fast like they're strong technical clubs they were moving so i was just trying to keep up like yeah, so we actually went across very fast past the sections of, yeah so, yeah definitely hard, well hard racing also just because you're moving moving quite fast so, yeah, so you get, a, wanted to get, get out of the way as quick as possible and you get across that traverse and then you look, you know, you kind of turn to the right and you look up and now you've got this last snow slope up to the summit, but it's longer than it, than it, um, than it looks, isn't it? It was oh, definitely, you know, and, you know, steeper and longer than I really kind of expected. Was it fixed the whole way or did they run out of rope? There were a lot of ropes up there on the, oh, wow. the icy section. There are probably yeah. like five different strands in a couple of places. Cool. I was kind of surprised. Like, even if the fixing team hadn't gone up this year, there was plenty of old material on the mountain. To, I don't know if you trust it, but yeah, on the steep parts. Yeah, we ran out of rope on our on our um, final summit attempt, and luckily one of the guys had just like you know a couple of hundred meters of 
you know, two mil. I mean, it was like, you know, it was, it was tiny, you know, something like you would use for shoelaces. And so that was our fixed rope going up to the final pitch to the summit. Um, but sadly it was a, it was a whiteout up there for you guys, according to the pictures, Yandarius that you sent me. Yeah, there was, like, I had, like, when I got up there, I could see a little bit, but yeah, most of it was, nah. like, some direction, but yeah, mostly. I think we were, like, right at the... cloud came in, yeah, so almost no, no view. Yeah, it was really, like, threading the needle for this summit push. In this three days, we thought it would be a little bit better, but, like, when we started from Camp 4, it was snowing for the first two hours, and then it cleared out, and then it seemed like we were at the level of the clouds. And when I topped out, it was like, I don't know, 8 a.m. or something. I didn't really get much of a view, unfortunately. And then later, after descending for like two hours, then it was like total whiteout. So <laughs> really, I think we like, maybe we nailed the window, in like just a couple <laughs> hours around sunrise. The cloud kind of, window. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a small window. I saw yeah. the pictures from the 22nd. It looked like they really nailed it there. Yeah. And they, they, that drone video too, they have that uh, was pretty impressive. Oh, have Sandro, you seen, have you seen that? Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, but you said you had a good view uh, looking into China and all over the Karakoram from uh, Broad Peak. So, uh, it you know, you're okay. <laughs> so then you now you got to go back down, and, and you both of you were feeling pretty good. You both were um, felt very proud and rightfully so of the time. That it took you to get up there especially leaving from camp three uh but now you got to go down so talk us about this you know a lot of people when they talk about climbing these mountains they say yeah i got to the summit it was great you know and then we then we got down and we went home it's like well, wait a minute no no you got to down climb <laughs> yeah andreas you should talk about yeah there, there was, that's also why i spent like i said very short i just they took a few pictures and, and the video and then i knew like I was still not like I was feeling good up there, but not sure like how how this uh, the altitude would affect if I stayed for a long time. So yeah, a few minutes, and then I just like I'm in the video I sent out talking in Danish, but yeah, there I'm also just talking about like we're hoping to get back down to camp two and that I would start the descent immediately. So yeah, I I, I just started down, and then like, as soon as I started down, I saw the Italians and Eric coming off. And then, and then just just kept going, going, and then at around eight thousand four hundred meters, we met uh, Ben, the French, like a French guy who had made the speed record on Broad yeah. Peak. He was also trying to make the speed record on K two. He had started the same day in ABC, and now, but yeah, he was like initially he was when I talked to him, he was quite clear that he had, it was it was clear that he was tired because he was just lying with his head down, touching the ice. But then I talked to him and. And he seemed like asking how how far is it? And I said maybe for you it's probably only an hour, but also otherwise two hours if you're tired. And then and then I just kept kept descending, sending. And then I then I saw him starting on the way down. I was very surprised, but yeah, I just kept kept going and didn't really know what what was going on. Later turned out that he actually, it was actually quite serious and he needed help from from one of the surface and with some oxygen before he could go go down yeah, so, yeah that, he that lost was... his memory from that time the lack of oxygen must have affected him a lot so he had to oh. one of the seven summit sherpas dorji had to give him oxygen his own oxygen and then ben descended i caught up to them at the 
at the traverse section and Ben was still having trouble. He slipped and the rope caught him in the traverse, which is kind of scary. And so then I, I met up with him at the other end. Meanwhile, the Italians came down and one of them was snow blind and he needed help. And so we're kind of organizing this, uh, how we're going to help these guys. And this is at the top of the bottleneck and there's a hang glacier above. So we're like, okay, we got to go fast. Got to get down. And so then I helped one of them down and like Francois helped the other and we all, we all made down the bottleneck. And then at the bottom of the bottom, like then like Ben and the other Italian with snowbinds, they were okay on their own. That was kind of scary, like getting down as fast as we can with them. Was it lack of eye protection that caused the so the snow blindness or so it, I thought what he said he was wearing his goggles the whole time. So I later talked to a there's actually like an ER doctor down in Scardu, and he said he thinks sometimes the lack of sometimes the eyes can work fine, but the brain doesn't process it because of lack of oxygen. And ah. he thought it was something like that. I don't know. That's so possible. not a not a frozen cornea, but more of a, a connection wasn't working. Yeah. I don't know. He said that's that's yeah, because, that can happen. Yeah. Interesting. He, and it sort of makes sense because he when he got back to base camp, his sight like recovered quickly. It was back to normal. So yeah, yeah that maybe it's quite scary that stuff like that can happen, but yeah, it sounds plausible. That was the explanation. I always say that altitude is random. I mean, you know, one climb you can do great, and the next climb, you know, you can just be, you know, knackered. I know that I I, I really never had pulmonary edema, but I developed it on you know on my ascent on K two. Luckily, it was a mild case, but nonetheless, it was a uh, uh, it was interesting. I will say that. <laughs> on the way up. Yeah. Wow. How yeah. do you know you have it? My friend said you have like a Darth Vader voice or something. Yeah, you 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 have gurgling. Um, and then when I was coming down, I I began to cough up green phlegm, that you know about the size of your palm, and um, I I just couldn't breathe. Uh, so it was a, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of an ordeal. <laughs> Did you have to like go the whole way? Like completely down to base camp then or no we uh we summited and then came back down to camp uh three i would i wanted to stay at high camp but um you know better minds clearer minds prevailed and uh, we went down to camp three they wanted to go all the way down to two but i just just did not see myself being able to navigate uh, i almost i almost uh, lost it anyway going down the next day uh misrigged a, a rappel uh, you know, I took the bite of the rope and put it through the uh, figure eight, and but I failed to put it through the beaner. So I clipped in the beater, you know, uh, uh, through the figure eight onto my harness. And thankfully, um, you know, kind of like what you were talking about that you had this experience before. So stuff is in your muscle memory that I got to this anchor in the Black Pyramid, and I automatically put my safety on, uh, you know, onto the, the spider web. And hopefully you're on the right, you know, <laughs> a decent bite there. And uh, so I went back to test it and I, I went back the, the length of my safety because that, um, you know, my, my wrap just fell right through the figure eight. So, you know, that kind of stuff happens when you're, um, you know, when you're exhausted and you're fatigued and, you know, you're just not processing oxygen. So I completely understand Ben and thankfully, uh, you know, one of the seven summits Trek Sherpas was there to, you know, to give him, and also, I mean, just look, I, you know, my heart goes out that Sherpa gives up his oxygen, right? I mean, just, I mean, these guys are just amazing. And yeah, you mentioned also the, the client, the, the Mexican client, because he was actually very helpful. I think like he was even saying he would pay, pay for, like, he, I think he, he was helping Ben a lot too and saying he would pay for the oxygen needed. And 
and and everything. But yeah, of course it was. It, then in the end, it was the Sherpa who, who was like giving his oxygen. But yeah, I think he had, he was very helpful to the Mexican. But yeah, that's actually what you're saying about this being random. That's exactly why I wanted to talk about Ben because like he was clearly exceptionally strong. Like what yeah. he did on Rotig is like mind blowing. I just still don't understand how it's possible to do it that fast. But yeah, when when it can happen to a guy as strong as Ben, like it can happen to to anyone, and it is it's quite worrying. I I was not quite on like because I was a bit lower down, so I didn't quite know. I just but I did realize since he turned around that something must be wrong. So. Like I was a bit worried, and at that point, like my focus was also just yeah, we just gotta get below eight thousand, hopefully also below seven thousand for tonight, just to avoid any. Like we we're still feeling feeling good, but yeah, you never know things can change at that altitude. Yeah. So well, then Ben he, so he has a he paraglides down, so he got to camp three, and he just put his wing up, boom, he was in base camp in like twenty minutes. So that definitely helped his recovery. <laughs> <laughs> but he had the wherewithal to be able to manage the paraglider. He must have recovered quite a bit by, by Camp Three. God, he, he a... seemed fine at Camp Three. Yeah, how long did how long did it take you guys to get yeah. back down? Um, did you spend the night any place? Yeah, did you go to Camp One? Did you go back down? No. Yeah, we yeah. intended to go the whole way down, so we made it down to Camp One. But by then, I mean, it was night. And we're okay going down the dark. It's a little riskier because if a rock comes down, you can't see it to jump out of the way. But we thought, okay, it's probably unlikely there are other people also descending at night, so maybe they won't kick rocks. <laughs> so we were going to go down, but then the snowstorm came in. It was extremely windy and snowing really hard. And so we just spent the night at Camp One. Yeah. So we didn't went down next Yeah, I, I was still like I was a bit impatient and and pushing, but yeah, it was good to have Eric. Like you know, it was clearly the right decision to stay in, and Eric was arguing for staying in Cap One, and and I started realizing that yeah, that there's no doubt this is the right decision. So I mean, one reason to not stay, well, one reason to not stay was just because Camp One smells so bad and so much <laughs> trash, but but the storm was so bad we just stayed in Cap One. Yeah, I just kind of bit the bullet and did it so um yeah so then this is a little bit of a shortcut so then you go from camp one back down to base camp and eventually the trek out so look, talk about just for a second these two big issues that um are seemingly occupying or dominating the post k2 season discussion one is one of the crowds and the experience of the people on the mountain. And this is not, I don't want to be critical of, of people that were doing this, you know, um, but there's also a, an element of earning the right to go climb, especially a mountain like K2. I mean, even if you do use oxygen and you're on a commercial team, you know, it's still not like getting in the car, you know, driving down to the corner restaurant, um, you know, and you guys did it the hard way. But did you, um, you know, did you, do you have any high level thoughts about what you observed in terms of experience and the number of people on the mountain? We probably, since we tried to avoid all the crowds, we probably didn't notice as many. Just on the time we went, I definitely noticed a couple people that didn't seem super experienced. I definitely think that it, I think it's worth it to, try to like work your way up to ever uh, work your way up to k2 and that's kind of what we were trying to do like we do 6,000 meter 7,000 meter technical 7,000 meter okay 8,000 8, meter that's not hard okay that's not as hard and then k2 i kind of i think it'd be great if 
everyone tried to do something like that. Yeah. I don't know if it if it happened though. From what I heard, there yeah, were quite a few inexperienced yeah. people. Yeah, it seemed like was probably actually on the day the day we descended, like the, the, after we stayed in Camp One, it was quite clear that it was at least like they, they, there were two Sherpas and a client, and the cli they were going extremely slow. So it seemed like the Sherpas were sort of instructing the client and repelling. And like, in, like at the end, we had to go because rocks were still falling and we were going so slowly. So yeah, we had to make it like around them by just like not instead of repelling, we were just yeah holding to the rope and walking for to, to get around and and then to, like repel afterwards. But yeah, that that seems like an example if. Like if you're not confident you're repelled, then maybe you should, should not be Shouldn't going be up K2. Yeah. I think that yeah, also it, might help with the rock fall. Yeah. If people spend a lot of time in the mountains, they you gain more appreciation to how careful you need to be if there's people below you. It's so, so easy maybe, to maybe. kick a rock by accident. Yeah. Especially yeah. this year, I guess, with a relatively uh, low snow year. So I know there was like uh, Sarah was going to try to ski off the summit, uh, but um, the conditions were just, you know, not good enough to ski. Oh, we met Sarah coming down. She was actually getting forecasts from Chris also. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, she's here in Colorado. So just an incredibly strong, incredibly strong climber. Um, and then the other topic of the um, of, of the trash and things, we've already kind of talked a lot about that. Any Any insight into why you think that, climbers or guides or teams think it's okay to you know leave trash on the mountain i kind of really think the price the price might affect things like if you're paying tens of thousands of dollars for the mountain and the tent's like 200 dollars, it's you just buy a new tent it's and leave your leave your tent on the mountain and it's not that big of a expense maybe they're thinking of it in terms of expense the numbers obviously had like it like ties that into the other issue yeah, about the numbers and maybe i don't know if you read the email i think like, that's maybe just my theory but the, like i suggest like maybe it could be that also the fact that so many of people are relying on sherpas to carry everything up the people like people that just, just don't carry anything they also rely on the sherpas to carry all the trash back down but they so but they already can't so they it made us just be fairly hard for and um, and maybe the Sherpas are like having done all the work are very tired and their main focus is perhaps not on cleaning, cleaning on other people's trash. So if people are expecting a Sherpas to do everything and then the, the Sherpas cannot do it, then it just gets, maybe it gets, gets left there. I don't know if that's the reason, but yeah, if that's the, seem... if that's the case, I mean, you know, operators will then they'll, they'll double up the staffing to help somebody summit. Well, they ought to add, you know, add a couple more, people to help do you know cleanup duty if the clients are incapable of at least carrying their own stuff down well anyway um you know this is not unique to k2 sadly and um you know i i would love to see you know governments really get serious about leave no tra trace ethics and do some remedial training and remind every person when you get a permit um i don't know if you experienced that on denali but you know you go there and the rangers just you know, they just really emphasize it over and over again. And, you know, in Aconcagua, you've got the, you know, the cans there and, and they actually weigh, they weigh the can to see if you're bringing down enough, you know, solid human waste per person. I never have figured out what, how they do that quota, but, <laughs> you know. So in my experience, I tried to give, get them to weigh my bag of, 
uh, trash and poop and he was like yeah. get that out get that out so he does <laughs> understandably he doesn't want to get near it he maybe he just eyeballed it and like yeah that's probably enough <laughs> but on denali they weigh the trash too so yeah. maybe they could do something like that yeah 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 i mean there's some best practices and like vincent on antarctica is just really that's the gold standard for uh leave no trace and, and taking care of the environment keeping it pristine um yeah i just hope that uh you know the other countries around the world uh you know even killy has uh, i think they do a pretty good job but there's still room for uh, improvement there especially in some of those uh those toilets at some of the camps are kind of <clears throat> interesting <laughs> yeah, something has to happen but yeah and but it still is a bit maybe i i would suggest that it has must almost have something to do with because I think on Broad Peak the, this year there were more people, probably more independent people than on K2, and it's, just, it's strange to me that Broad Peak is so much clean. And, and the Camp Three is quite bad too, at, at least in terms not in terms of trash, but in terms of left of tents that are just left there. But Camp One and Camp Two are significantly cleaner on Broad Peak than than on K2. It, it's I don't quite understand why it's so different between these two the two mountains. Yeah, I've heard some people speculate that it was because of the more commercial people, and I'm not ready to throw the commercial operators under, under the bus because I think they, uh, you know, they're doing a pretty good job. But uh, again, I think there is an opportunity for improvement there as well. And it also seems to be like some of it, at least the tents, like they, many of them have, must be years old in Camp Two, and yeah. so it it seems like an issue that has like been going on for a long time. And, Maybe this year was just worse because the numbers, not necessarily because people actually were throwing more trash than normal. It's just that when there's so many more people, it's like the same issue is worse. Yeah, I don't know, Andreas, because when I look at that picture that um, that well, was on Instagram of Camp 2 from this year, it looked almost identical to a picture I have from 2014. Um, you know, there were still, you know, the shredded tents and they're just all collapsed and there's pieces all over the place and so I just think that that's, I think the stuff has gotten frozen in so badly. Um, it, it's kind of like on Everest after the earthquake when everybody had to quickly get out of there that they really left a lot of stuff there. Um, it, it eventually got cleaned up, uh, mainly due to helicopters coming in. And uh, so good news, bad news there. So. Well, gentlemen, um, closing thoughts. What, uh, I mean, was K2, Broad Peak, was Pakistan, what you thought it was going to be, Andreas? What he was it? Any any huge surprises for you? Well, yeah, I guess we we did not go into the summer expecting to do K two. So yeah, I'm like yours. The whole thing was like turned out. I guess about as well as it could. It's pretty much a perfect summer. I would say the very enjoyable experience. Altogether. Eric, any surprises for you or takeaways? Uh, the mountains are maybe a lot bigger than I've than I was expecting from base camp to summit. You go up like 10,000 feet or more. That was a little bit, a little bit surprising. Yeah. yeah cool. Everything's really beautiful there. I mean, and super, I go back. super friendly people too, right? Yeah, I was surprised people are so friendly in Pakistan. They're never, uh, I go to a new country and I think, oh, they're trying to rip me off or no, everyone's just trying to be friendly. I was pretty surprised. And our, our base camp was stuffed with people from all from Hushi and like, they they were like really fantastic people. Like you know, I felt like yeah, we were really lucky. Like yeah, they they were like honestly caring for everybody and like really interested. And like, every time we came back down, it was like so great. They were sort of celebrating the summits just as as much as we were. 
they were just happy that you were still walking didn't have to carry you out yeah <laughs> now i had the same experience i thought that all the way from the you know the porters to the you know liaison officers to everybody was just they were just super nice and, and genuinely cared about you know what we were there and also they were very appreciative of the you know of the business of the tourism business being brought in so all right gentlemen Thank you so much, and uh, best luck on the next climb. Um, I hesitate to even ask, but what is it? You got it planned yet? Uh, next spring, we're looking at Everest and Kanchenjunga, possibly. There'll be three country high points, India, China, and Nepal. Cool. That That, that is a three for it. <clears throat> yeah. Did them both. And people are doing now, you know, four, five, six, eight thousand meter mountains like in a week. So, you know, two, you'll be slacking off. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, without oxygen, it's probably I think pretty difficult. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> All right. So appreciate appreciate your time and your insight and uh, welcome home. And just uh, very, I just think you guys did a great job. And I know a lot of people are inspired by what you did and uh, keep it up. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having us on. Fun. Yeah, no, truly. Thank you.